Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. I take full responsibility for everything this government has been doing in tackling coronavirus, and I'm very proud of our record. Tens of thousands of our citizens have died avoidably. These were unnecessary deaths because of systematic government misconduct. With good British common sense, we will continue to defeat this virus and take this country forward. There were a lot of green shoots of opportunity on the horizon. You know, we've been held down on the forest floor for far too long, and we will reach that canopy again. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Well, the next stage in all this uh, about the internal markets bill, Boris Johnson has actually held talks with some of the Conservative rebel MPs in an attempt to win their backing for his law rewriting part of the Brexit deal with the EU. Now, the Prime Minister and other senior figures are said to have held talks with leading rebel Sir Bob Neill on Monday, but officials are still braced for what could be an ugly fight over the proposals next week. Yeah, so we saw the internal market bill pass its first parliamentary hurdle on Monday. That was the second reading. Uh, Got a bit of a rebellion there, but nothing significant. I think what the government is trying to do here really is to avoid something worse happening when it really matters when we start looking at those big amendments. No deal has been done with the rebels yet, according to one person who Bloomberg has spoken to. But Neil says he wants to give ministers the chance to address his concerns. Meanwhile, pressure is mounting on the Prime Minister on the virus testing system. Now, it's struggling, I think that's only fair to say, with an increase in demand as well as a shortage of staff at some laboratories. And hospital bosses then warning services are at risk because there are not enough tests for staff and a shortage of staff in the test lab. So Boris Johnson is going to be questioned today by the Liaison Committee. This is the Committee of Committees over the matter with Labour's Chris Bryant saying the hold-ups are causing two big worries. Doctors of every kind who are waiting for a test aren't able to get back to work until they've had that test. And secondly, you can't start the tracing of people until they've got their results from their test. And that was the Labour MP Chris Bryan. Well, let's bring in Philip Dunn, who's Conservative MP and Chair of the Environmental Audit Committee. We can talk about the environmental issues in a moment with you, Philip. But first of all, if I may, let's talk about the signs there might be a compromise in terms of the internal markets bill it's going through process but we do understand there have been these uh, back channels if you like talks going on uh, around it do you think there is room for compromise well i very much hope so i think it's it's important that this bill goes through because it has lots of very uh, uh, important things uh, for when we've come out of the eu to make sure we've got in place so that we have unfettered trade uh, across the four nations of the uk uh, so it's really important that this happens. But also, I think, you know, the concerns that have been raised by a number of uh, of colleagues uh, on all sides of the House um, uh, about the negotiating stance uh, do need to be taken into account. I mean, my own view about this is that this is part of the wider negotiation with the EU. Uh, we've had, you know, evidence of, uh, of uh, the JPEU negotiator saying he's going to use 
the Irish situation as a tactic. So there's no there's no doubt that um, unfortunately Ireland is the sort of um, uh, is is in the middle of all this wider negotiation, uh, and we need to conclude it. We need a deal, um, and we need to ensure that our negotiators have got a strong hand to make sure to to deliver a deal that's good for Britain. Right. But regardless of where it sits in the negotiating strategy, there is the issue of it breaking international law. And Brandon Lewis was quite clear about that last week when he spoke. But we've since heard from Priti Patel saying that the government is absolutely not breaking the law. Where do we stand on that? Well, having uh, proposing this bill does not break the law. Uh, The law would the the law that, that Brandon was talking about was in the event that we don't reach a deal with the EU and then that triggers uh, uh, leaving without a deal uh, in order to ensure that we can continue to trade across the Irish Sea in an unfettered way. That would then uh, trigger this clause which would um, come down on one side of the ambiguities that were in the Northern Ireland Protocol uh, and that uh, would be a, a technical breach of that protocol. So is it, if, if it goes through without any changes, Philip, is it something you could vote for? Well, I did vote for it in second reading because I think the bill overall is, uh, is essential. Um, I have reservations about, uh, about what we've just been discussing and therefore I'm going to wait to see the amendment that comes forward uh, from, for next. It'll be either, I think, next Monday or Tuesday that we'll be discussing this again. Uh, and we'll see what happens in these, in these negotiations. Within the party. So, so just to be clear, the government can't take your support for granted at this stage. Correct. And in terms of the conversations you've been having with your colleagues, I know it's a strange time with many people working remotely, but do you get a sense that there is a significant rebellion here? Well, we saw a rebellion of sorts. I think there were well, there were thirty-four MPs abstained. I think, uh, and two voted against as, uh, on second reading. So that is uh, that's a sizable number. But obviously the, uh, the government had a, a much larger majority uh, on the night. So uh, it's a delicate matter. I've been a, a whip for a number of years, um, both in opposition and in government. And I know um, that conversations will be happening and uh, it would clearly be desirable if um, some kind of uh, arrangement could be made to, to so that everybody on the Conservative side were happy to support the bill. Let me move you on to what's going on with virus testing, Philip, if I may, because that's uh, been something where people say, really, this government doesn't look as if it has its hand on the tiller in the correct way. Whatever one thinks of the decisions made, the way they're made doesn't seem to inspire confidence. I'm just, for example, the news report that uh, a testing centre near Ebbsfleet uh, is being stood down because it needs they need room to put the lorries in uh, when the chaos happens, uh, possibly on January the 1st or thereafter, in terms of getting things across the EU-UK border. So it doesn't seem like joined-up government. I mean, do you think it is an impressive uh, experience, really, the way the government has managed this? Well, I think you have to remember where we started. We started with a disease for which there wasn't a test initially. Tests became available. Testing capacity in the UK uh, has has been confined uh, before the outbreak to NHS and Public Health England laboratories. So we, we don't have a diagnostic uh, uh, commercial industry uh, with testing labs in this country. So they've been established through private sector universities scaling up and, of course, the lighthouse labs. So we're now in a position where we've gone from having capacity uh, once the tests were, uh, were established to be efficacious of about 100,000 in March uh, a day to now 250,000 a day. 
with the um, on, on track to get to um, uh, to double that capacity by the end of October uh, when you include the antibodies. I think it's I think it's 370,000 including antibody tests a day at the moment, and the intent to get to 500,000. That means that we've tested over 20 million people. There've been over 20 million sure. tests since March, and and it's more. Our capacity today is more than it is per capita in Germany, but, um, uh, Italy, or France. So I think Philip, we're, the, we're, the, we're having a discussion now about strategy. rationing tests. Surely that yeah, is so not what, the world-beating system that was promised. So, so what you're, you're talking about was has been uh, badly handled. I think we've we've managed uh, an increase in tests uh, well uh, thus far. And your example of Ebbsfleet, I don't think is um, uh, is particularly useful because each of the test sites, uh, well, not each of them, but many test sites are mobile and are meant to move around the country. I've had one in my constituency where there was a, um, a, a, a town with a, a, a limited outbreak and a mobile centre turned up and started doing tests there. It's now moved on because the outbreak's been contained. So t- mobile test centres are being moved around. As to you know, whether we've got enough, your bigger point, you're absolutely right. As um, we move to, through autumn and towards winter, we will start to see many more people having symptoms of flu and colds and coughs which are similar to symptoms from COVID. So there will be an in, a very large increase in demand for testing. And that's where I do agree we've got to scale up testing much more than we currently are planning to do. And I think that's why uh, the government has been investing significantly in a saliva-based testing pilots, which are now underway in various parts of the country, um, uh, in the hope that that can provide a much more rapid uh, and widespread capacity for testing. Philip, let me move you on to something else entirely, which is to do with the UK's hydrogen strategy. I know you're leading a call for that as part of decarbonisation efforts trying to improve our environmental outlook. But in some ways, I mean, we've heard today Hitachi's pulling the plug on a nuclear power project. I mean, carbonization, decarbonisation is getting more difficult almost, isn't it? Well, I think that I'm very glad you, you've raised the hydrogen strategy because that's something that we on our Environmental Audit Committee have been uh, pressing the government to uh, get a move on. We've got a you know, significant advantages in this country to, to um, uh, in terms of both the, the technology, the innovation. We've got some of the sort of world-leading players delivering uh, products and capacity into to the hydrogen uh, economy. But we haven't at this point got a national hydrogen strategy to to help set the demand signals for um, both all the kinds of users of hydrogen. Uh, which are, are widespread from you know, transport uses through to industry, um, aviation, shipping. There are lots of potential uses of hydrogen, even in, including hydrogen within the gas uh, mix for domestic heating. Now, all of this requires getting the production of hydrogen cost down to a level that makes it uh, commercially viable. And much of that revolves around um, the government setting uh, the strategy to allow um, those companies that wish to involve and get invested in this area, and there are many of them, uh, to have confidence that they can do so. And that's why hydrogen strategy is so important. A good sign from the government this summer was setting up a hydrogen advisory council, uh, which met the end of July. Uh, And I'm very hopeful, having had the minister and the Secretary of State, um, Alex Sharma, in front of our committee last week, that there will be progress on a hydrogen strategy. My worry is that we're 
now sort of running to catch up with other countries having been ahead. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. And Roger, we start with the story you alluded to in the first part of the program. Situation going on down in Kent. Yes, it is rather extraordinary. A coronavirus testing centre in Kent at Ebbsfleet has been closed to make way for a lorry park for post-Brexit customs checks. The government is planning to use the land uh, if the UK leaves the EU without a deal on 31st of December. That's according to the local democracy reporting service. Now, one councillor there said local infrastructure, quote, cannot cope with the lorries and there'd be chaos on the M25. A cabinet office spokesman said no final decision had yet been made, but this does seem to be a bit of a collision between two major issues at the moment. I just get flashbacks to that trial. Do you remember with all the lorries piling up the whole Chris Grayling plan? Uh, we will have to see if that comes to pass once all of this finally clears up. But that is a headache for the government, no doubt. And then meanwhile, the head of Whitehall's spending watchdog is warning ministers that there will be no excuse if billions of pounds worth of fraud within government schemes continues under a second coronavirus lockdown. We're not there yet. We could be. Gareth Davis, the controller and Auditor General at the National Audit Office, saying uh, to The Guardian that there had already been significant abuse of the furlough scheme and the bounce back loan scheme, which would take months to identify. And then Rishi Sulak, of course, facing increasing pressure from senior Conservative MPs, opposition parties, business organisations that's coming from across the board to extend the job retention scheme, the furlough scheme, which is due to end at the end of next month. It's a tricky thing, isn't it, Roger? When you put together a scheme so quickly, there are always going to be things that fall through the cracks. Uh, but I, I suppose it's about the extent of it and it's about covering up those cracks to make sure that you don't make the same mistake twice. Yes, I, there are so, so many issues to try and keep in mind. And the other issue, of course, in regard to Brexit, is what might happen in terms of a future U.S. trade deal, because there was that doubt cast by the House of Representatives Speaker Nancy Pelosi, saying there'd be no UK-U.S. trade deal if the Northern Ireland peace agreement was undermined, and now the Foreign Secretary Dominic Raab has gone to Washington, where he's expected to try and reassure U.S. politicians on all this. The concern being that uh, in Congress that the plan to override parts of the Brexit divorce deal might also mean the end of the Good Friday Accord, and they don't want that. Number 10 said the peace agreement will be upheld in all circumstances. Yeah, a tricky position for Brexiteers, isn't it, who've been drumming up the US trade deal as a big answer to post-Brexit trade, looking outwards global Britain, all of that. It's, if it's put into peril, then it's going to leave them grasping 
for answers. But let's move it on. Let's talk about trade. Joining us to do that is Therese Raphael, Bloomberg Opinion Columnist. Uh, Therese, we've got to talk about the testing fa fiasco. So we're at the stage now where we are talking about potentially rationing tests. It's very hard to get them in many parts of the country. If you can't get one at all, you may at least have to travel very far to get one. And it comes at the time when we're back to school, lots of kids coming home with runny noses and wanting to get tested because they worry it might be the virus. And then you get lots of people, um, lots of families even, who are then having to isolate. So I suppose the question is, is it fair to say that this was a predictable uh, aspect of the whole back to school process? Yeah, I think it absolutely was. And the extraordinary thing about this particular uh, crisis or you know, fiasco, I think it's, it's absolutely fair to call it one, um, is that you know, this was a government that initially ignored the calls to test, test, test from the World Health Organization. Only after there was a spiraling of cases and deaths did it acknowledge that testing was central to getting control of the coronavirus for a suppression strategy. Then there was this enormous effort to ramp up testing to remember 100,000. That was the big goal. Then 200,000 was reached um, only this summer. And we just had Boris Johnson's commitment of um, of seeking a moonshot project for 10 million a day. We've had the push to get kids back to school, parents back to offices, the eat out to help out, all of this geared toward getting the economy back and people back to normal. And what happens? The testing system goes into meltdown and it goes into meltdown. We're still trying to understand exactly why, but it seems to be <clears throat> it seems to be a confluence of factors from increased demand as children get back to school, which is entirely predictable. They get the sniffles, um, and, you know, and the teachers also will need to be tested as, as they show symptoms. Um, and at the same time, uh, a, uh, problems at, at laboratories, you have uh, volunteers who've gone back to universities and the like. And just combined, you know, the, the centrality of testing with the inability somehow to kind of anticipate this need to prepare for it. I think it's really going to hit um, trust in government, which is already, you know, un under, uh, uh, you know, under pressure on so many fronts. And, you know, the question now is, is it fixable? Matt Hancock said in Parliament on Tuesday, it was a matter of weeks. But, um, you know, that's really a that that's really questionable. I mean, how many tests can they process if they are able to ramp up capacity? And will that be enough? Um, if you've got every sniffle and cough uh, requiring a test, how many would you need to be able to clear those? How quickly would the turnaround have to be? If people right now are waiting for, you know, days to get test results, traveling um, many, many miles for one, it's not clear that they will be able to, even in a matter of weeks, satisfy the demand for this. I mean, I suppose this Ebbsfleet event we were talking about, it shows a collision of a number of crises building now. This is the government's fighting on so many fronts at the same time. Do you get a sense that perhaps this is beginning to uh, eat away at the support of even its 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 closest followers, perhaps not in the Westminster bubble, but perhaps even outside more generally in the country? Is confidence beginning to be eaten away, do you think? Yeah, and I think common sense just tells us there's only so much a government can manage at one time. And the pandemic is you know, it's a once-in-a-century crisis of enormous proportions, and yet Brexit is also um, a pretty historic uh, 
uh, event that requires a great concentration of government resources and has also economic costs. And so I, th- I think, you know, the, having the government uh, juggling resources uh, in terms of just ministerial attention, the Ebsfleet uh, situation, although they moved the testing center, I think, 11 miles down the road to Rochester. So they, they, they simply move the testing center from one place to another. But it still just shows how much juggling they have to do when, you know, a place that they were conducting coronavirus testing now has to be designated as a potential lorry park because there still may be a no-deal Brexit, which, you know, also reminds people just how um, unclear the future trading relationship with Europe is. And, you know, that brings back also um, memories of you know, shortages at the at the beginning of the pandemic when stores are running out of toilet paper. Will we be facing that again? But I think all of this is feeding into uncertainty. Uncertainty, as we know, has all kinds of uh, consequences for consumer behavior and the economy generally. So none of it is very good news, I'm afraid, from, from the government standpoint. Well, the question, I suppose, is also the PR aspect is how much of this is cutting through? I mean, we've talked a lot about Brexit on this programme. It's not to say that it's something that the people on the street are talking about. Is is testing, by contrast, something that you get the sense that is being more widely felt among the greater population? Yeah, I think that's a fair point. I think most people just want to be, you know, want Brexit over with. Uh, and and much of the details that are now being discussed are really, really technical uh, questions about customs declarations, um, non-tariff trade barriers. The public has long since tuned that out and, uh, you know, is much more focused on on the pandemic and absolutely testing cuts through because schools are sending kids home, parents can't go back to work, Uh, you have a sick child, you want to get a test um, for the child, you can't get through um, through the online, you you know, system, or you're being sent hundreds of miles away to Aberdeen for a test. So that absolutely cuts through because it speaks to competence and an ability to get control of the second wave of this virus and also people's ability to kind of, you know, to work and and make a living. So um, I think that's something the government will be seeing as just a huge priority, but it still has to handle Brexit, the internal market bill, uh, which we haven't discussed yet, but, you know, that will determine whether the EU is even going to show up again at the negotiating table. So it's all connected right now. Well, let's, I mean, let's talk about the internal market, because we were, of course, earlier with Philip Dunn. Interestingly, here he's mm. saying that he wouldn't guarantee to support the government when it comes back to the House next week. Kind of depends on what the uh, amendments are in it, of course. But do, do you think there is an appetite for compromise in this government? It's, it's one that really has hated the idea of compromise on almost anything up to now. It's hated the idea of compromise on Brexit, and yet it's also a government that has, um, you know, is, is now famous for U-turns, isn't it? And I think how many fights can Boris Johnson have at one time? His statements in the Commons on Monday um, suggested, uh, I think, that that he wants to give, he wants to find some common ground. He wants to give MPs a vote on uh, triggering what he calls the safeguard provisions that are contained in the bill. Now, whether that's going to cut cut it is not clear because the way the government wants to uh, pursue this compromise, MPs would have a very limited debate on triggering those 
procedures. That debate would take place after the provisions come into effect, not before. So for some MPs, that's clearly going to be unacceptable. And it's not even clear that 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 will satisfy those who say that just passing the bill is a breach of international law. So I think this has some ways to go. But uh, backbench MPs may not want, um, you know, this to be the issue that they fall out with Boris Johnson over. Uh, and they, they may not want to hand the Labour Party such a, you know, such a clear uh, way to attack the government right now. So I suspect we'll, you know, they, they will find a way towards some kind of compromise. That doesn't mean that the EU will think that the compromise is sufficient to resume trade talks and make a deal possible. So I think that's the other big question. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.